The future of fitness is here. Be a part of it. NASM's new virtual coaching course will equip you with the skills, tools, and strategies necessary to launch, operate, or transition your current fitness or wellness business to a successful virtual coaching business. As a virtual coaching specialist, you'll open yourself up to a whole new world of opportunities, being able to help clients from around the world anywhere and anytime. It's the ultimate flexibility as a trainer, while also creating new revenue streams. Start the next phase of your training career with NASM's Virtual Coaching Specialization. Sign up today at nasm.org or call 1-800-460-6276. You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie, and after a little break, we are now back in the studio, so to speak, and recording another live episode on our Facebook Live account. If you're listening to this as the podcast, thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate it. And I want to point out that, again, we are kind of going through and talking to the people who are on the NASM Scientific Advisory Board. And the opportunity to meet and talk and speak with researchers and clinicians that review the science on behalf of the work that NASM does and our, our peers in education, it's an honor to have the opportunity to meet and talk and chat with people like this. And you get the chance to, to be a part of this as well. So thank you for being a part of it. Today, I've got Dr. Adam Anacone that's on the phone with us, right? So Adam is here with us and he's part of our scientific advisory board. We appreciate it. Adam, it's good to have you. Welcome, man. Yeah, thank you so much. It's an honor to be, uh, be on this. Yeah. Listen, I know a little bit about you. Uh, some of the stuff I, I've read up, we've chatted once before, but I'd like for you to tell everybody else who you are, a little bit about your your history, your background, your work, your education, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I tend to be long-winded, so hopefully I can keep this short and concise. You fit um, right in with the <laughs> NASM family if you're long-winded, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> Perfect. It takes all the stress off me then. Um, okay. but, uh, Adam Anacone, I'm an athletic trainer by trade. Um, did my undergrad at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, PA, a master's at Clarion University in Pennsylvania, um, got my doctorate at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, um, and I'm, a, I'm one of those that I like to consider myself a jack of all trades. I, I got interested in corrective exercise in the NASM content in undergrad, um, and I fell in love with it. And I knew early on that I wanted to adapt that programming um, into my, my philosophy. So my treatment philosophy, who I was as a clinician, who I, who I was as a practitioner. Um, and I, I can say now for the past 15, 16 years, I've dived, I dove headfirst into the content and I've lived it. I breathed it. And now to have the opportunity to serve on the advisory board is, um, I gotta say extremely, extremely, it's such an honor. Uh, and I'm really happy to be a part of that. And I've taken this across all different spectrums. So I've worked in the collegiate setting. I worked in a clinic setting. I worked in pro sports and being able to, again, apply this content to a vast majority of, of populations and individuals with different goals and, 
and things like that has been such an honor. So um, a little bit of background. I'm, I'm more than happy to dive into anything that, that you want to talk about. Now, what did you do when you worked in collegiate and pro sports? Yeah, yeah. so I was an athletic trainer. Um, most of the collegiate uh, experience that I was in was uh, division, NCAA Division One or Division II. Um, and I've worked a, a range of wrestling to football to women's volleyball, women's basketball, um, and really trying to, as that point person, as the athletic trainer, trying to serve as the um, advocate for my patients. And that includes working hand in hand with the strength and conditioning coaches, with our team physicians, with this medical team um, of individuals that surround the athlete and really trying to serve as a quarterback to um, facilitate the care necessary. And, and nine times out of 10, it, that fell into the realm of prevention. So a lot of it mm -hmm. fell on my hands to really try to ensure that we're doing the simple things necessary to try to mitigate the risk of injury, right? So we know that um, we can't prevent all injury, but if we can certainly do the simple things like looking at sleep, looking at stress, looking at nutrition, hydration, rest and recovery, if we can look at those things and hopefully we can try to mitigate it. And then um, to have the opportunity to carry that over to pro sports and, and do the same thing in an environment um, with the Phoenix Suns and Aaron Nelson, who was there at the time, oh, yeah. uh, head athlete trainer. I mean, to have the opportunity to learn from him um, and his staff, Tom Maystead, uh, Mike Elliott. I, I mean, the guys who have really it, it, it set the bar extremely high. Um, to, to be able to work with them and have an opportunity to learn and advance under their uh, tutelage and leadership um, was a dream come true. So, uh, yeah, just serving as an athletic trainer and really trying to bring all this content to, uh, to the patients that I serve. Man, that excites me because I know the entire group over at the Phoenix Suns and Aaron Nelson spoke at our Optima conference just a few months back. And uh, they all seem to be pretty big fans of NASM. And mm -hmm. I know that that they had the opportunity to, to be uh, a protege and to be under the mentorship of Mike Clark, who, mm -hmm. who created the NASM OPT model and kind of developed a lot of stuff. And he, he was the head um, physical therapist at the Phoenix Suns for years. And so there's still a real close association. And I have actually worked with several of the athletes that have been in that program, uh, one through a connection through Mike and another because I saw him at the Apple store in <laughs> Century City in Los Angeles. And I just went up and talked to him and I happened to be wearing an NASM hoodie at the time. <laughs> and I walked up to this very well-known athlete and I just said, hey, I'm one of uh, one of Mike Clark's guys. I work at NASM and I partner. Uh, I'm one of the practitioners for Fusionetics. And he pointed at my shirt and goes, oh, NASM. He goes, yeah, for sure. And we started chatting. And then I ended up training him. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's just like the there's so much trust that those athletes put in NASM because of their experience with people like you and Aaron Nelson and Mike Clark. So that's that's really huge. Uh, now, one of the things that I want to ask you, and it might be a question that's in a lot of people's minds, and a lot of people are going to know this, but some people don't, right? What's the difference between, we hear the word trainer in athletics, mm -hmm. and we hear the word trainer in fitness. However, there's a 
there's a big difference between those two things. So if you could share what the difference is between a personal trainer and an athletic trainer. Yeah. And we get this all the time. I even get it from some of my family members, right? I, I say I'm, yeah. I'm an athletic trainer. They're like, oh, you work people out all the time. Um, and, <laughs> and so it's it's constantly that education piece. And, and uh, the title obviously is a misnomer, but um, athletic trainers are board certified uh, healthcare professionals. Um, they just transitioned their uh, education program to it's now entry level master's. So you have to have a master's mm. degree and then you sit for a board exam at the end of, of your accredited program. So all education programs are accredited and athletic trainers are really, um, they're the jack of all trades. So we're trained in prevention. We're trained in, um, immediate care and emergency situations. We're trained in rehabilitation. We're trained in fitness and exercise. Um, the easiest way I describe it, you take a physical therapist, a, a fitness coach, strength and conditioning coach, nutritionist, um, a PA, a EMT, you throw all those into a pot and you have an athletic trainer. I, I, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned the EMT part. So when, uh, if you ever watch football and somebody gets hurt really bad and they said the trainers are coming out onto the field, they're not talking about personal trainers who are coming in to see if there's a broken bone or a torn ACL. Yep. Yeah. No, I, 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 I know a lot of really good personal trainers out there who probably know more than most, but um, when it comes to uh, emergency situations or, or uh, uh, torn ACL, I certainly wouldn't want them to uh, take care of me or my kids. I, 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 I'd like to think that I'm a pretty good personal trainer, but I don't want to be in that situation either. Like, I don't want to be like, Hey, we need a trainer. Can you come and look? I'm like, no, no, it's not me, bro. But yeah. I, can, I can help you with some things, but this is not yeah. on the list. Well, and that's why, that's why you'll hear if you ever encounter an athlete trainer, um, if you call them a trainer, most of them will be very quick to correct you and say athletic trainer. Um, just our little, our little uh, educating piece to try to differentiate ourselves from uh, personal trainers or horse trainers or any other type of yeah. trainer that's out there. <laughs> no, that's good to know. It's good yeah. to know. So next time somebody calls a horse trainer a trainer, I better hear uh, equestrians. Or yeah, something. absolutely. <laughs> well, what are some of the I, you know, I'm interested in this, right? So I, I had somebody refer to athletic trainers as like physical therapists for athletes, uh, but physical therapists are physical therapists for athletes too, uh, or they can be. Um, the, the athletic trainer is really a super mixed bag of things. And I think that you, you kind of explain that quite well. Um, what made you want to go and why do, why do athletic trainers tend to go into athletic training? Yeah. Uh, so um, like most athletic trainers that I know, um, I was a somewhat mediocre um, high school athlete. And um, I one day I was playing volleyball, I rolled my ankle and um, my high schools, uh, my high school was one of the few in the nation that actually employed a full time athletic trainer. Oh, um, you went to a fancy school. <laughs> actually, yeah. it's not. But <laughs> really? By, by luck of the draw, um, we happen to have uh, have one on staff and um, I was mesmerized by it. Right. And I, I was always curious about the human body and and medicine. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if I had the drive or passion in me or even desire to take it the med school route. 
Um, but I knew that I loved sports. I loved activity. I loved uh, participating in a team environment. And I also loved the medical, uh, medical side of it. And so uh, having that interaction when I sprained my ankle with, with my high school athletic trainer really set me on that path of where I wanted to go. And then um, it was also in college when I, when I started, in uh, started in athletic training school, I realized, um, and one thing I shouldn't mention before, because you brought up the differentiation between a physical therapist and an athletic trainer, um, athletic trainers work under the direction or supervision of a physician. Um, so everything that we do is guided by a physician practice. And having that interaction with a physician, I found um, that interaction was very easy for me. And I, I could foster a really close relationship with the physician I was working with and bring my ideas and, uh, and serve as a very trusting member of his medical team or her medical team. Um, and it was just that collaboration of constantly coming up with ideas, constantly trying to figure out what is best for our clients and our patients, um, that I fell in love with. Yeah, man, I, it's a, it's a, it's a cool concept and it's not really something I was familiar with until I was already out of my undergrad program. Mm -hmm. And when I saw and learned about athletic training, I was like, ah, that, that would have been pretty cool. That yeah. would have been pretty cool. Um, so I, I like the idea. Tell me a little bit more about the NASM scientific advisory board, like the, the role that you play, what, what the board is and um, what led to this, this kind of meeting of the minds and you coming on board here. Yeah. Uh, so I was uh, fortunate enough to be asked to help contribute to the, the new edition of the uh, corrective exercise um, specialist textbook and, and uh, you know, online course content. And um, from there, uh, I was, uh, I was uh, called and asked to be on the scientific advisory board, which uh, certainly honored um, to get that invitation and be a part of it. And um, from my understanding, our role is uh, kind of twofold. Number one, bring that expert, that um, expert clinical piece to the board. Um, and from there, being able to uh, get a good pulse of what's it like out in the field right now for, for the fitness industry, for the healthcare industry, you know, all around. Um, so bring that clinical piece and that clinical expertise, but also the scientific aspect. Um, we all should be consumers of evidence-based um, uh, literature and research. And there's a big push for that, especially in the fitness industry. Um, certainly in the healthcare industry, there's been a push for the past five, 10 years for evidence-based practice. Now you're starting to see that creep into the fitness industry. And so um, I see my role as uh, being able to take all these complex um, scientific studies that come out uh, that talk about you know, sleep or talk about recovery or talk about you know, muscle activation and boil that down into digestible pieces that the everyday um, fitness professional can then implement with their clients. Uh, because we know that if it's too complex, if it's too over the board um, in terms of scientific jargon and language and, and um, things like that, it's very unlikely that the fitness professional will understand it and implement it. And it's extremely unlikely that the client will buy into it. And uh, we won't have that behavior change. And then, uh, you know, we kind of tend to fall back on what our go-to is. And so we're not implementing ev evidence-based practice. So 
Um, that's really what I see. The purpose of the board is is that twofold piece is bring clinical exp expertise and that research component to make it digestible so everybody can can truly benefit from what's coming out. Well, some of the new things that are in this corrective exercise book and the content, which weren't really in the last, are um, recovery. So there's a whole mm -hmm. chapter on recovery. There's uh, and regeneration and sleep. Like there's there's several chapters that are addressing this, and we didn't really address it before. So we've got some tools and modalities. Um, what are what are some of the things that that you see coming out and some of the evidence-based things because here's something that's interesting when i ask you about uh, being an athletic trainer and you talked about injury prevention mm -hmm. and that being a big part of it you didn't immediately the first thing you didn't say was uh clamshells and the drawing in maneuver and you know what i mean like mm -hmm. you said stress and sleep and recovery and regeneration. And then when you kind of got to the end, then you started looking at some orthopedic things. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about recovery and and the importance of that for, for you, your athletes, the people that you work with. Yeah, and you know, I think the easiest way I boil it down, um, you know, we have two dogs now and we just had uh, two twins that were born um, oh, wow. October 30th. and. I've heard this saying in the past, but now that I'm living through it, I truly understand it. Um, babies and puppies sleep all the time when they're first born. And why do they sleep all the time? Because that's when their systems are growing. That's when their body is, is adapting to changes. And that carries over as we continue to grow through adolescence and adulthood and what have you. And uh, our body needs that ability to recover. And the only way that it's going to recover, you can try every supplement out there, you can try every magic potion or what have you. But if you're not sleeping, if you're not taking care of your mind and your body, then you are not going to recover. And we talk about um, in, in, uh, in athletics, uh, we talk about, about availability. And Dr. Mike Clark talks about this all the time. Dr. Um, Darren Padua from UNC talks about this all the time is, is the best type of athlete is the athlete that is available to play when called upon, right? And so right. if we're not taking care of our bodies, if we're not doing the things that are, are naturally, that, that we're supposed to be doing because our body does it naturally, then we will not be available to play or be available to compete at the highest level when we are called upon. Um, so that's why I think really everything that we can do that's natural to us, sleep, maintaining a healthy and mindful um, stress level and mindfulness, um, maintaining proper hydration, proper nutrition. If we can do those simple things, then we can start learning about the complex, you know, moves and exercises and programming and everything else. But if we don't do the simple things, just like babies, we're not going to develop properly. I agree with that. I also want to point out something that you mentioned, which was behavior change. Yep. You talked about behavior change and getting people to, to learn and understand and follow through with behaviors. Do you think, this is an interesting question, do you think that it's easier to get some of the professional athletes or collegiate athletes to um, adhere to a program because it's their job than it is for maybe a personal training client? 
or, you know, or some, are some athletes, they've been a pro for a long time and they know what they're doing and big, you know, they're big for their britches and uh, <laughs> they, they might as, I might as well be an athletic trainer. I've been doing this for so long. You know? <laughs> right. but what is the adherence and compliance like between maybe different populations that you work with? Yeah. You know, I don't know if, great question, by the way, but I don't know if I really notice a difference between a high level athlete and, um, you know, a weekend warrior. Um, and I, I always say that um, it's a game of thirds, right? So you have a third of the population who, who do everything that's asked of them and you ask them to do, right? They buy into all of this. They, they sleep well, they eat well, they're, they're really mindful of what their body is doing and how they treat their body. You have another third that's kind of in the middle, you know, it's, it's kind of hit or miss. And these are the individuals that um, come, you know, the new year, they, they set res uh, New Year's resolutions to work out more and, and they stick with it and then they kind of lose track, but then they stick with it again. And then you have the other third that just wants nothing to do with it. And I think that carries over across all populations. I will say though, the one thing that perhaps um, individuals who get paid to do a certain task, so pro athletes get paid, um, basketball players, they get paid to play. There is a little bit more incentive because your body is your tool to get paid. So if you're not, if you're not taking care of your body, your body breaks down quicker and then you're not in the league as long. Right. And that's what sure. a lot of the veterans talk about is longevity. They want to be able to play as long as possible and make as much money before they can no longer do it. Um, and I certainly think there's other populations. You, you think of um, a factory worker, he may, he or she may, um, view or have the same mindset, right? I want my body to last as long as possible, or at least until retirement, so I can build up that nest egg and then enjoy the fruits of my labor. Yeah, I feel that that's, that's probably the case. I mean, you and I have both, uh, and you so much more than me, have worked with athletes um, that, that are getting paid and they, they're ready to show up. But one of the things that they like too is, you know, they've they like to um, get a lot of table work. I found. <laughs> like, yep. like if I could get you to foam roll, they're like, you know what? How about I just pay you and you work on my cat? Uh <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that across the board, right? If I had the for means, sure. if I had the means to have someone cook for me, I like to cook. But if I had the means to have someone cook for me, I probably would have someone do it, right? <laughs> Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, and, and I like it, but you know, in these, the, one of the things that I talk to them about is as we speak about longevity in this conversation, and this may be why there are so many corrective exercise specialists within the NBA. So with a specialization through NASM, but also the, the excellent education that goes into the athletic training and things like that. Um, it, it is about longevity because once you're in the league, you're in the league. Right. So maybe you can add another inch or two to your vertical and that would be great. But what would be even better is to not get hurt. Yep. So you're you, you're not going to work longer. You're probably not going to get paid a whole lot more just because you work out. But you will continue to work as long as you maintain your skill training, you maintain your technique and you minimize the risk of injury. Yep. And I think that that's why so many of the athletes have gravitated towards being much more aware of the recovery 
and being much more aware of corrective exercise. And, and they're running drills and they're working with their, their strength and conditioning coaches and they're working with their skill trainers and they're working on game plans and all of it's important. And we see the big sports have those things, but not all the sports that are out there have those things that are highly challenging to a body. Uh, for instance, um, I like to say that, you know, the, the programs that are like working out, you know, the, the cross training fitness, um, sport of fitness kind of exercise programs, they put themselves in really a lot of challenging positions and there's seems to be a lot of money in them, but we're not seeing the, the team care, the self care, the, the providing by those companies for care, like athletic trainers in there. Is that something that you've come across and, and thought about at all? Uh, well, absolutely. You know, um, not to go on a, a little side tangent here, but it, we talk about behavior change and with professional athletes and things like that. And um, I think what is atrocious is what's going on at the younger levels. Um, so AAU basketball, you know, youth football, I'm here in Texas and, and what occurs That's all a big the deal. time. And it, you see these, um, you see these individuals or these kids that are specializing in sports earlier and earlier, right? Because we yeah. think if we specialize early, that's going to lead to a college scholarship, that's going to lead to big money, professional sports, what have you. But we know only about 1% of, of um, high school athletes actually go on to play college, right? Um, and a smaller percentage of that uh, get a scholarship. And so if we're talking about behavior change, if we're talking about building good habits, if we're talking about funding and resources, um, I think it's a, a travesty that we don't have um, the individuals in place at an elementary school, at a middle school, at a high school to provide the resources and the training and the expertise needed to change behaviors that carry over for the rest of their life. Whether you go into being a pro athlete or not, mm -hmm. we don't take care of movement. We don't, we don't teach proper nutrition skills, rest and recovery. We don't teach mindfulness. Um, all the things we've talked about during this podcast, right? We don't teach that at an early age. And, um, you know, to kind of bring this all together, uh, Dr. Sanjay Gupta did a great documentary uh, called One Nation Under Stress. And it said mm. how everyone is at their boiling point right now. And any event can take us over that boiling point to where we explode. And that's where we kind of see that term, the, you know, Karen pop up, right? And people right, are yeah. videotaping and, and everything else. And in this day and age where everyone wants to create an exercise, that's sexy or looks cool for Instagram to get followers. Um, they tend to forget about the simple things that we need. And so uh, if we could provide the resources, if we could provide the education, the training, the, the individuals at a younger age and across the entire spectrum, I think, I think a lot of these injuries, a lot of these um, stressful situations, uh, this boiling point that us as a society we're at, I think we could maybe mitigate some of that. So I don't know if I, I got to your question quite frankly. I forgot what it was, but me too. I don't even know. I don't even know. I'm on to the next that, thing. That's, you said so many things. I'm like, yes. That's my answer. Yeah, I love it. You know what's funny too is that uh, I can probably go on and on about 
the the state of schools and education and what what's missing and, and it's tough because they're you as uh, uh, a doctor of education as well, right? Like you look at what's out there, you look at the education and you know that there's a system in place and it's based on some broken material and then it's got some people that are implementing and they're trying new things and they're looking at a flipped classroom and they're looking at the children and support groups and, uh, and, and, and the joining of forces and understanding even us like in an academic capacity where if you look at the peer um, study and the peer studies allow somebody, one person, or a group of people maybe at a university to do research, suddenly that's shared with a group that is educated and now everybody knows that information. So one person made everybody smarter and then the next peer reviewed research and the next one. And so our body of knowledge expands and expands and we become more educated. We would never be able to do that one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when a system as big as an education system is in place, uh, the analogy that you hear is like trying to, to turn the, the Queen Mary around, right? Like if it was a small boat and you learn something new, you could, you could adjust and move quickly. But this is a big ship and it's, it's hard to, because you have to pump the brakes in order to make the turn. Uh, and if you don't, then it's just a really wide, gradual turn. Yep. And, and, and it's tough because I know even as an educator, there are things that I need to get better at logically that I've looked at and I've studied and yet I fall back into my old ways. Right. Like it's easier for me to do this. Same thing as a personal trainer who takes some type of new education, new certification. It's very easy to hear that information, receive that information and think that it is brilliant. Mm -hmm. But then you have to do the work to make it happen. And it's the work that's hard. Yeah. And you realize that maybe you got a pay rate increase because you did that education, but you don't have to really apply it and that's harder to do and then we just go back to what we were already doing and for some people they've been a trainer for uh, over a decade and they've gone to courses in education but they still do the same shenanigans that their high school football coach taught them because that's yep. what's ingrained in them yep. and the the exposure to new knowledge doesn't mean that there's acceptance to new knowledge the exposure yeah. to new content doesn't mean there's application to new content and i think that that's uh that that goes along with our schooling our education and even our education right like our education yeah. in the fitness industry it becomes a challenge so one of the things that i like is you know you, if you understand concepts mm -hmm. then it's easier to learn how to implement it to give you as an individual the the ability to be free freer by by conceptually i get it but so many people just want can you just tell me what to do mm -hmm. and if you give me a guideline i think that's why all these diets work i think that's yes. why there's so many people doing like hey just give me a, a exercise program and let me do it 
Um, you know, and, and personal trainers do that with their education as well. Uh, I don't know. I feel like I'm just rambling at this point, but I get <laughs> so caught up in this, this idea of we can do better. We've got the knowledge to do better, but like anything else, we have to work at it. And that's mm -hmm. where we tend to fall short. Well, I, I mean, you brought up so many great points and as you were going on, my head was going in four different paths <laughs> as, as to how I want to take this, but you know, it's, I, I try to tell my students, um, and it, I'll, I'll use an analogy, like me as an educator in the classroom, I am constantly bombarded with new techniques and with COVID happening and shifting all online. I mean, I dove into just about every resource out there to try to be an effective online instructor during these times, right? But it, it's almost like system overload to the point where I got so consumed with it that I wasn't actually putting the work in to implementing it. So yeah. I was consuming, I was consuming, I was consuming, but then when it came time to actually implement it, I was fried from consuming so much. Right. Yep. And, yeah. and I think we see that even in the fitness realm um, as well. And so what I try to tell my students and what I try to tell my clients and, and anybody I'm working with um, is one thing that truly helped me out as a professional is developing a treatment philosophy or a philosophy of how I want to practice. And so I, I think that served me very well when I went to uh, professional sports in the NBA, because there you have all these companies that are reaching out to you and saying, hey, I have the latest, greatest technology that can do this, that can do that. And how I would evaluate those companies and those products and those tools is I would compare it to my treatment philosophy. And I, I think my treatment philosophy founded in the NSA, NASM um, OPT model and the corrective exercise continuum, um, founded in that, I would gauge everything to, okay, is this truly, um, does it fit into this philosophy? Does it replace this philosophy or what have you? So I was, I was going through that micro, I guess, assessment every time someone would pitch me a, a tool or a technique or what have you. And if it was better, then I would adopt it. If it wasn't better or if it was accomplishing the same thing, then I would sit there and be like, that's great, but I have something that I think that works for me. And then constantly tying that to the research, right? So um, I think that's the one component where we lose track of is we fall into our ways, but it's not backed by the research. Whereas the NASM content, a lot of that's backed by the research. So it, that helps, right? So uh, really to, to keep me grounded, keep my clients grounded, and I try to keep my students grounded is develop that, that philosophy of who you wanna be as a clinician. And, and then adapt with times, but be very critical of how you're adapting. If you see something on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or what have you that looks really, really cool, before you implement that into your program, you better study up on it and identify and know exactly what it's doing and what muscles it's targeting and how it impacts the body. Because while it may look cool, you could spend 10 minutes working on an individual and then you implement the wrong exercise and it throws all the work you just did out the window. Um, so I, I think we need to have that self-awareness of who we are as, as um, fitness instructors, um, fitness professionals, healthcare practitioners, and, um, and then carry that across not only individually, but 
at our work site. So our, uh, where we're working and try to get our staff on somewhat the same philosophy. And then if we can get our staff on the same philosophy, then maybe we can get the community buying into some of this. And, um, and then it just builds from there, but we can't, we can't get people on a straight path if we're not on a straight path ourselves. That's true. That's a good point. I think that's where a lot of personal trainers, you know, uh, some people like the idea of being a personal trainer, um, mm -hmm. but maybe they don't live that life. Um, some people live part of it, right? Like some people will do the fitness, but they don't really pay attention to their nutrition or, uh, or their sleep or things like that. And, you know, everybody's got whatever they need to deal with. But I think it's very important that if we're going to say this is, this is our path, then we should at least be working on being better with our diet if we know that we're not or being better with our uh, exercise if we know that we're not because um, it's it, it's one thing to, to and it doesn't mean look this doesn't have anything to do with weight loss or anything like that it has to do with your behaviors which goes back to what we we're just talking about like you can be obese you can be fat and fit you can be healthy by focusing on your fitness and your activity levels. And I just think it's really, really quite important for us to understand that our end result isn't necessary. I mean, it's nice to have these. Our end result, though, isn't what's my um, uh, triglyceride level or what's my, my resting heart rate or what's my you know, my PR with my bench press uh, or squat. And I think all of those are great things, but at the end of the day, it has to be what is my behavior that I've shifted in order to help other things fall into place. And if we're not doing the small changes and the small shifts in behavior, then we're never gonna get the big ones. And so it's all about setting these small incremental goals, mm -hmm. these wonderful um, habit development that, that aren't big. And yeah. then they end up turning into something that you're proud of that people want to continue to do. And so again, like setting, setting smaller goals to help us get to these big goals in order to create this behavior change that you're talking about is important. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a question. So uh, sure. you've worked with pro athletes and a ton of experience. I mean, um, what goes through your head when you have spent all this time educating a client about what they need to do on their end? Right. Yeah. And then um, they come the next day or the next week and they're like, oh, this is really sore. Or this hurts or this hurts. And you, you take that dive. Right. You go through the checklist. Well, did you do your foam rolling? Did you do your self-care? Did you sleep? And they're like, no, 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 no. Right. How, how does that make you feel as a as a fitness professional? Yeah, that's tough. And there are a couple of things that I want to address with that question. So it's really interesting that you say it. And so I want to I want to address it and um, in a way that I feel really comfortable with, which is the first thing I always do is I look at what I did first. Right. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes back to me and they're like, I was really sore, then the I go to my phone and I look up the program that we did and I see what was it that I may have gave them that that overshot their capacity, yep. right? They're really sore. I did something. Mm -hmm. Now, if they text me and they're like, hey, I'm really sore and it's the next day or the day after and I go through 
everything you mentioned, right? Like, can you try some foam rolling, maybe do some light stretches? Can you do um, an active recovery? So go for a walk and get those legs loosened up. You're gonna feel a lot better about it. And they come back and they say, I didn't do any of those things. Um, I think that you have to give people something that they want to do yeah. in order for them to do it. And if yeah. foam rolling sore legs, hurts adam yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> not sore legs hurts for a majority of people yeah so that's not going to go over well most people think that stretching is supposed to hurt mm -hmm. i don't know why but that's just kind of in, in, ingrained in people for some reason somehow stretching hurts right. so now there's something else that like my workout hurts my way to feel better from my workout hurts which is maybe foam rolling and maybe it's stretching um my legs hurt to go for a walk, everything. Like I just, they're overwhelmed, right? So mm -hmm. if I contributed to that overwhelming experience, then that for me is going back, looking at my program, seeing what I put on paper for them and then adjusting that and, and, and then saying, hey, now that you're not sore, can we now start implementing some of those other things and it has nothing to do with your soreness, like the foam rolling, nothing to do with soreness, the strenuous, nothing to do with soreness, the water intake, nothing, nutrition, nothing, <laughs> nothing. Like, can we focus on just what is the, the minimal amount of change you're willing to do mm -hmm. in something that you already want to do? Yep. And if you don't want to do it, then I'm telling you to do something and make changes that you're not interested in when you could be making changes in something that you're already interested in. Right. So that's why, like, I try to get good information from people. And when they say I don't, um, I used to try to make people do what they didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. Right. They'd come to me and like, oh, I don't like doing that. I'm like, you're going to love it with me. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then maybe it lasts for a few months or whatever. And I, they've had enough. Um, I actually had a client just recently. I've trained him for years and I do a warm up. It's a warm up that I like doing with majority of my clients. It's a really dynamic warm up, warm up with a medicine ball. And one day he was just like, I hate doing this. I just hate it. <laughs> and I was like, we will never do it again. I didn't know you did it. I dynamic warm up, right? Yeah. But him it was something it was something it was his yep. bugaboo when he came to the gym and he knows that he's going to do it every day yeah so he doesn't look forward to it every day right so i'm the professional which means yep. i'm armed with the information to change mm -hmm. the workout i can change it because i should have the capacity to understand mm -hmm. how i can implement something else that doesn't suck for this yep. guy well, uh, so that's your philosophy, right? So you yeah. have identified that with every client that you're working with, you you implement a warm up, and you're confident in that. And then when a client comes along and says, "I hate this exercise," right. you you you're not completely discarding the warm up. You're just making that modification, and so I think that that is a prime example of exactly what I was I was getting at before: is being confident in in our system, right? We develop yeah. a system that we think we trust. And then we're the keepers of that where we have knowledge in different exercises and different, you know, components and tools that we can implement. Um, and we can certainly provide that individualized component 
to our clients that set them up for potential success. Yeah, for sure. Adam, I want to do this real quick. Thank you for everything. Um, but uh, Greg, who you have known from, yep. from years past, is our producer here on the show. And uh, we usually go to Greg and ask for some questions. There he is. Hey, Greg, how you doing, man? Good, how are you? Good, good. Do we have any questions uh, on our, our Facebook live feed for Adam? Yeah, there was one uh, from Jim in the in the feed, and Adam, he kind of wants to know what your experience in the MBA was like and how that helped kind of form the way that you're teaching people now. Yeah, and then, well, uh, Greg, thanks. Uh, Jim, thanks for the question. Great question. Um, it, there's nothing really that you can compare being in the NBA to. I mean, I found myself every day pinching myself saying, wow, how did, how did I get here? Um, but I think a couple um, key points that I took away from that experience um, is something that Rick and I were just talking about is adaptability and being able to uh, be flexible with your schedule, with your time, um, even with your programming. Uh, there was a I went in, um, I think my first year with the Suns and, you know, you have somewhat of a, a ego and, and what have you, but you need to learn to check your ego at the door and realize that these individuals are getting paid a lot of money and it's no longer about you. It's about the team you work with. And so I had to rely on Aaron Nelson, Tom Maystead, Mike Elliott, and everyone, all the other professionals at the Suns and know my limitations and realize, hey, I'm over my head here. Um, I need some help. My athlete is telling me this um, and I just can't seem to help them out. So can you guys help me? Um, so I, I think that team component, knowing when to uh, check your ego at the door and um, truly listening to your patients, listening to your clients and be adaptable when they say so, but also asking them, are they, are they feeling what you want them to feel, right? So if you're implementing exercise, are you feeling that here? If you're not feeling that, well, then I'm doing something wrong. So having that self-assessment and asking the, the right question. So I think at that level, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of expectations as you as a professional, and there's a lot of expectations as a team. So it increases the stress level and how you get through that is, is relying on the people around you and realize that your success is the team's success and vice versa. Um, so the, the more you can be a team player, um, the, the better you can be as a professional. Um, and that's one of the biggest components that I took away from that. Um, that's very nice. Uh, I want to, I want to bring up one more thing cause we are running short on time. And so I did want to bring a, this up and it's really, it goes into what Jim was talking about, about pro sports. And I have a lot of individuals that may ask me, you know, if I get my PES or CES or this, I'd like to be able to work with athletes, which is fine. But sometimes they put the word professional in front of it. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I, I have a hard time because I'm like, well, that's, that's probably not going to happen, right? Like if you don't have a degree in the field, mm -hmm. uh, you're probably not going to work with a professional athlete and you might have the opportunity as a personal trainer one-on-one -on -one if mm -hmm. you're connected with them and you're established to be able to work with somebody but to, to be on a staff for a team like a strength and conditioning coach or obviously an athletic trainer where you have to have a, a, a degree and you have to be licensed or certified so the LAT mm -hmm. or the ATC 
um, you have to have those credentials. So, you know, is, is there still hope for personal trainers that want to work with athletes? Uh, I, I think, it, I think it is becoming, um, harder and harder, uh, for that path. I, I think you mentioned it uh, perfectly is, uh, you have to have that degree. You have to have that, that licensure. Um, a lot of the times we are, we are guided as athletic trainers. I mean, we're guided by our state practice acts or the state tells us what we can and cannot do. And a lot of that refers to what our, our physician allows us to do. Um, and you see this regulation, you see, um, player salaries going through the roof. Right. And so with that, there's going to be more scrutiny as to who's working with them and what their background in education is. And, and what have you. So outside of the one-on-one -on -one component, as you mentioned, um, I think it's, I think it's really hard if you just have that PES or CES or what have you with no educational background or degree um, to get your foot into the door. doesn't mean it can't happen. Um, doesn't mean you can't serve in some sort of consulting role or what have you just makes it harder for you to get to that step. Right. Perfect. Well said, sir. Thank you for your time and your insights. If people want to learn a little bit more about you, maybe reach out to you or follow you on social. If you do social, how, yeah. how can they do that? Yeah, um, they can reach out to me on uh, Twitter uh, at a Anacombe. Um, that's probably the best component. Um, but yeah, feel free and do a quick search. And uh, I, I think it's easy enough to get my contact information. I would welcome all and any um, comments, debates. I love to debate. I love good conversations. Uh, so hit me up. Tell me that you absolutely hated everything I talked about. And <laughs> that's a great conversation piece. And we can go from there. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you, I like that you take it with stride, my friend, and it was yeah. nice having you on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Adam Anacombe, thank you so much. This, uh, My name is Rick Ritchie. You can reach out to me, and mostly on Instagram, dr.rickritchie, and you can hit me up, uh, email rick.ritchie at nasm.org. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.